0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. The discovery of a dead baby in a South City freezer earlier this summer was a macabre story that had St. Louis riveted. Adam Smith's mother had died from cancer. Not long after, he told KSDK, he was cleaning out the freezer when he made the grisly discovery. He said the container holding the tiny corpse had been in the freezer for possibly decades. The story drew national attention from all the usual suspects, but then everyone moved on. Back to talking about national politics or the crime of the week. Everyone, that is, except Ryan Kroll. The freelance writer and faculty member at the University of Missouri-St. Louis pushed below the surface to get a tale that is, in many ways, even more sad and surprising than the initial discovery. It is this week's Riverfront Times cover story, and Kroll is here in studio to share what he learned with us. Full disclosure, I have in the past been Ryan's editor, but I did not work on this story. Ryan Kroll, welcome to the program. Hey, Sarah.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Ryan, there's been a lot of coverage and also some misinformation about what Adam Smith and his siblings knew about this mysterious box in their freezer before they opened it. Sure. Help us understand, what did they know up until the point that Adam actually opened the box?
1: Sure. So, growing up in St. Louis, um, Adam and his sister Susan... They always knew there was a box in the freezer. Obviously, it's sort of hard to miss. Um,
0: it's about the size of a shoebox.
1: Yeah, a big shoebox. Uh, Adam described it to me as the sort of box that would fit a pair of boots. Okay. Um, so they always knew there was this box in the freezer, and the and their mom Barbara always said, you know, don't open it. Um, whenever they asked about it, whenever they asked her about it she would deflect or just say something kind of vague, but the rule, sort of the the bottom line was just don't open this box. And I think Adam and uh, his sister Susan kind of, you know, uh, gave it the most sort of charitable interpretation. They thought maybe it was like a wedding cake topper or something like that that had been saved from years ago. But for the most part, they just didn't think about it, you know, stuff that you encounter as a kid, it just becomes normalized, and eventually you just don't really think about it too much.
0: And their sense was that this had probably moved with them at least once. Oh, more several th- times. Well, <laughs>
1: Several times. Yeah, I think if, if I remember correctly, Barbara lived is either uh, four or five different address at four or five different addresses all throughout South City, uh, kind of around the hill for the most part, but also in like Tower Grove South. And yeah, and the uh, Adam's older sister Susan, who is in her mid 40s, she always remembers the box being there. Adam always remembers the box being there. So it must have moved from house to house to house because Adam re- remembers it at the first house he lived at, uh, which was off of like Morgan Ford and Tower Grove South. And it's been with his, uh, or was with sort of his family and all subsequent moves as well so yeah it moved from place to place
0: and now if it were me i feel like if someone tells me don't open the box i'd probably be tempted to open the box but this wasn't something that loomed large for them
1: exactly yeah it was just another box in a freezer you know it's full of whatever frozen pizzas and frozen food is just another thing mm-hmm. and um yeah i think kind of like i said just you know just from an early age it was established hey don't open this thing and it just had a way of kind of filtering out of their sort of everyday awareness, and um, it didn't re- reoccur to Adam until after his mom passed away, and he was like, oh, I can, I can finally, you know, solve this uh, riddle. And that's when he opened the box. Yes, yes.
0: Now, what did he know about his mother prior to the point that he opened this box? I understand they had kind of a fraught relationship.
1: Yeah, it was, it was somewhat fraught for sure. She was a tough person, although Adam's uh, very quick to always mention that, you know, she always kept a roof over me and my sister's head and always kept food on the table. But yeah, she, um, you know, was a heavy drinker, um, was sort of uh, could verbally berate her kids. She sounded for no mean. Reason. Yeah, frankly. mean is probably a really good way to put it. Some a lot of the things that Adam said she said we can't say on the radio. Um, but you know, in the last 18 months of her life, whenever her health really started to deteriorate, uh, Adam did move back in with her to take care of her. And I, I, this might be me sort of searching for something of a of a positive spin, but I think they did have something of kind of like a you know a reconciliation. Um, the relationship did improve somewhat, although I think for Adam, it was still very, very rough. Uh, it was not an easy day-to-day existence living with his mom, who was mean, like you said, and also, you know, kind of on her deathbed.
0: Yeah, suffering some from some real health problems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, she was a heavy smoker, so she finally died. He opened the box. What? What did he find?
1: Sure. So yeah, he. Uh, well, he was clean. His, his girlfriend was sort of on him to clean out this apartment. He had waited a few days. Uh, he was cleaning out the, uh, the 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 freezer and. um yeah. So he op- he opens the box and he finds, I think it's like, I don't, I've, I'm not a father. I don't know exactly what's the, what, like a onesie, like mm-hmm. what, you know, like a, like a garment that's obviously like a baby's. Um, and then there's like a little foot inside that he he grabs. Um, and at that point, he just, in his own words, he freaks out. He just puts the box on the table, puts the baby back in the box and he calls the authorities. So, Yeah, he found a baby. I don't know. I don't know how it's very
0: clearly a baby. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the police ended up coming. Have we learned anything since about maybe how old this baby was or what the cause of death was? Have they shared that with him?
1: No, um, they certainly haven't shared it with him and they haven't shared it with me either. I've I've talked to the um, medical examiner a few times. Um, And all all I really know is they say it'll take about 8 to 12 weeks. So that puts us you know, in October sometime. So hopefully get some pretty soon. Yeah. Some results soon. And they did say at the medical examiner's office that there were some tests that needed to be done that couldn't be done at their offices, so they had to send material to other locations to be tested. So they
0: were obviously taking this very seriously.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think they recognized the fact that you Adam and his family really want to know and then they're not alone in that
0: now in your reporting you found out something that shocked me and that is soon after Barbara Smith died in addition to finding this box with a dead baby in it Adam Smith found out about another secret pregnancy apparently his mother had secretly given birth when he was about five years old how did this end up coming to light after her death
1: sure so it's totally it's random it, the two uh, events barbara's death and adam discovering this are you know they're, they happened simultaneously more or less but they're unrelated in some ways because adam's let's see here I, i'm trying there's a family tree here and I, I don't want to get it wrong so adam's cousin who lives i believe in um the south south she was on 23andme mm-hmm.
0: the the dna the dna side. yeah
1: yeah yeah she she had her dna tested and as did this woman named Laura Sorensen, who lives in Illinois. But she grew up in St. Louis but lives in Illinois. So the two of them um, connected on uh, 23andMe, sort of like a, fam- like a family tree kind of gets built. And um, uh, so they realized that they were cousins. And then also the woman who lives in the southeast of Florida, Adam's cousin, she connected with another woman who she was related to, who's named Shannon. And I can't tell you all the specifics, but Shannon and Laura, via 23andMe, were, real, were able to realize that they shared a mother. And then, put you know, sort of comparing notes with the woman in the southeast, they realized that their mother was this woman's cousin's uh, mother, her, her aunt. And... Um, so yeah, so they realized that Barbara Smith was their was, their, was mother. their mother. Yeah,
0: and Shannon had been given up for adoption, and and Adam had been aware that there was a child Shannon's age who'd been given up for adoption. Yeah, so
1: he knew about uh, Shannon because Shannon was born about four years before Adam, um, but but after his Adam's older sister had mm-hmm. been born, so they knew that their mother had had twins, um, one of whom was stillborn, and the other who was given up for adoption. And that was Shannon. Okay. So he knew that this person existed. He didn't know her name or where she lived or anything like that. Um,
0: But this second person, who's a daughter of Barbara Smith, this came as a complete shock to the family.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it was a complete shock for Laura, too, because she she had her mother's name, and she was told by uh, Adam's cousin, who she connected with, that, you know, she just passed away. You kind of just missed her. So she was just looking for the obituary online and whenever she Googled that, the story about uh, Adam finding this baby in the freezer was the first thing that came up
0: oh what a shock that must have been yeah
1: it's 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 pretty you know as she, you know she said it's it's hard to really know what to make of it yeah. You
0: know, yeah I mean how amazing to find out that you've missed meeting your biological mom by just a matter of weeks and then to also realize she's in the newspaper for what is a very disturbing reason that there's this dead baby in a freezer
1: yeah definitely and so what Laura told me was that she'd actually read uh, a sort of a, a quick article about Adam's discovery before she realized that Barbara Smith was her mother. So she'd actually kind of been introduced to her before she really knew the personal connection, which is pretty wild um, for her, for sure.
0: Now, on Friday, our producer talked to Laura Sorensen, whom you interviewed for your story. And this, again, is Barbara Smith's daughter who'd been given up for adoption that no one in the family knew existed. She said that she and Adam Smith have shared some theories about the baby that he found in the freezer.
2: Grand theories back and forth. Obviously, I don't really have that great of a grasp on the situation since I, I didn't know Barbara, but I've talked to her sisters who were around her, you know, growing up at the time. Even when she was pregnant with me, nobody knew about me. Nobody knew about the baby in the freezer. The, most of the speculation is that it was something, some sort of accident happened, and, and that was her way of just hiding it in shame, I think, because she was, they were raised in a very strict Catholic family. I, I mean, they have that whole show, I didn't know I was pregnant or whatever, on TLC, but it's just so bizarre that even her sisters who were around her, I know particularly when she was pregnant with me, they didn't, they didn't know but they said that she they said she was a bigger woman and none of them were looking for a pregnancy so i guess it would be easy to miss if it's not something that you think should be happening
0: That was Laura Sorensen, who only recently learned that the late Barbara Smith was her birth mother. And we now know Adam would have been about five years old when his mother was pregnant with Laura Sorensen. He had no idea, and she had sisters who were around at the time, had no idea.
1: Yeah, that's totally correct. So Adam was born in 81, Laura was born in 86. And you you can totally see how a five-year-old wouldn't maybe notice that, busy with other things. But at the time, so Barbara would later had a split with the rest of her extended family, but that was after 1986. So she would have been in contact with those people, um, those relatives, those, you know, her sisters and her mom and that sort of thing while she was pregnant with Laura. And you you don't know what exactly what happened because those folks aren't interested in talking to to the media, but maybe she sort of just disappeared for nine months. Maybe she was able to conceal it. Maybe no one was really that interested in looking or probing. I, I truly don't know, but one way or the other, no one knew about, no one in Adam and Barbara's family knew about Laura until just a few months ago.
0: So we know she had at least one concealed pregnancy. And yes. now with the dead baby in the freezer, the thinking is maybe there were two concealed pregnancies.
1: Yeah, so with this story, there's a lot of, inform- we want to be very transparent that we don't know all the facts. And we're sort of making educated guesses and informed speculation. But it certainly looks like uh, this was a concealed pregnancy. Th- that's what Adam thinks. Um, that's what Laura thinks. That's what I. I that would be my best guess and that's all we can really go with at the moment
0: now laura Sorensen, who just finds out this disturbing thing about her birth mother she told us what was going through her head when she found out barbara smith was her mother just a week before, after just a week after barbara's death
2: at first I, when i found out that she had just passed i was i was a little upset because we had just barely missed each other when i find when i found out who she was and that we lived in the same area, even in St. Louis, we both lived in South County. I lived in South County my whole life growing up, which is where Adam and Barbara and Susan, the sister lives or lived. Mm -hmm. And so once I processed that, I was okay because I I grew up, I had a great childhood. I've had a great life. My parents are great. So I never really felt like I was missing out on anything. Not, not to sound rude, but I had always wanted to know who my siblings were and to find, I had actually found, well, another one of them found me on the 4th of July. So within the month of July, I had found one of my half-siblings, found out who my birth brother was, and then found these other two siblings. I feel, I mean, I feel grateful that she made the decision to give me up for adoption. I definitely don't, I've never had any ill will or anything any, any against having been put up for adoption, I've known that I was adopted my whole life and and I've I've never had an issue with it. Um, I do think it happened this way for a reason. I think that had I found everyone while she was still living, I don't think she really would have wanted anything to do with me, especially since I was a big secret.
0: That's Laura Sorensen, who found out that her birth mother um, had given her up for adoption, and that she'd been concealed as a pregnancy. Ryan Kroll, do you think Laura's assessment of that is correct—that Barbara Smith would not have necessarily welcomed a reunification with this daughter she gave up for adoption?
1: That's a tough one. I, I really have no idea. It might have depended on the day that she had to make that decision. Were also multifaceted and hold so many contradictions. But I do know that. Everyone I talked to, whether they be related to Barbara or people who had lived with her, like boyfriends, that sort of thing, they all sort of had the same thing to say in the sense that they all said that she had a lot of secrets. Mm -hmm. There was just a lot of stuff about her history that people just didn't know. So... That's all I can really – that's the most yeah. – as a, as a reporter, that's the most I want to – I don't want to wait. I've already waited uh, into speculation. I don't want to go uh, any deeper than that. It's a woman with many secrets. Yeah, yeah.
0: We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
1: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more.
0: We're here with the writer Ryan Kroll. His piece, Cold Case, is on the cover of this week's Riverfront Times. It details the strange story of a family that soon after their mother's death found that she had long concealed a dead newborn in a freezer. It's a terrific piece. I talked on Friday with Michelle Oberman, who Ryan quotes in his Riverfront Times piece. She's an expert on this subject and the co-author of two books about maternal filicide, When Mothers Kill, Interviews from Prison, and Mothers Who Kill Their Children. I started by asking Michelle what first Piqued your interest in this topic uh,
3: You know it, it was actually my first year as a, as a law professor I got a call from a defense lawyer who was working in a really poor uh, kind of a, they call them the collar counties outside of Chicago who had a client who was 14 years old and was being charged with murder after having delivered a baby in a toilet and her dad with whom she lived, had no idea she was pregnant. She herself um, had no idea she was pregnant. Um, she actually she she'd only had her period once, hmm. so she thought that she was getting her period. Went into the bathroom, sent her father out to um, buy some aspirin, and when he came back, he found um, that his daughter was passed out in the bed in the bathroom. Um, they called 911 uh and uh found a, a full term fetus in the toilet
0: and the baby was dead uh,
3: the baby was dead and i'd never heard of anything like like that um and i uh in my effort to try to help them they had called me looking for whether there was an expert witness who had ever heard of a case in which a, you know a person could be pregnant and go all the way through pregnancy and not know that they were pregnant and um so I started doing some research, and it, you know, this was maybe 25 years ago, 30 years ago. The internet was really just beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I remember playing with some search terms, and then looking through early news files that came up, and I was stunned to find that there were hundreds of cases that involved really similar facts of people who either didn't know that they were pregnant or were in deep denial about the fact that they were pregnant so much so that, that they went to the bathroom thinking they were having a bowel movement. And for anybody who's ever had a baby, that mistake is actually understandable. It's the the closest thing that you experience to the feeling of labor is that feeling of maybe you're having a bowel movement. So they end up having emergency deliveries on the toilet and those deliveries don't go well. Um, I mean, it's, it's why we don't have our babies that way for the most part. Um, and the, um, the pattern in the cases uh, was um, as, as troubling um, both around the, the emergency delivery, which winds up um, in the death of the baby, um, but the pattern was as, as troubling or puzzling perhaps um, on the front end. Like, who were these girls and women? That's Michelle
0: Oberman, who's an expert on the topic of mothers who end up killing newborn babies. And a word of caution, we don't know that that is what happened to Barbara Smith. What we do know is that she concealed a pregnancy, that she actually probably concealed two pregnancies, and that she did have a dead baby in her freezer. But Michelle Oberman went on to describe what she's learned over the years about some of the common characteristics of girls and women involved in these cases, specifically people who end up
3: concealing their pregnancies. I began to try to systematically gather the storylines to, to figure out, who does this happen to? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that work, actually, which I've engaged in over the course of, of a, a few decades now, um, with a number of, of different um, scholars around the country who are, are also interested in it, reveals a, a pattern of... Um, Girls or, or young women, um, this is typically a, a crime that is in, that happens with the first pregnancy, um, who, who are deeply um, ambivalent about, um, well, actually, it's before the ambivalence. Um, it involves uh, girls or, or young women who are extremely passive socially, so not, not um, planners who've got, like, an idea that they want to maybe have a baby or perhaps that they'd like to have sex um, and, you know, but they're going to use contraception. So they don't have a baby. Instead they tend to be um, people to whom things happen hmm. rather than like people who make things happen. So sex kind of just happens without contraception. And then the pregnancy comes as a, as a surprise um, and the kinds of skills that allow most people when they encounter an unexpected pregnancy to make a plan are skills that these, these young women tend not to have. So the, okay, I'm pregnant. And that means that in nine months, I'm going to have a baby and here's what I have to do to make that work. Or it being, you know, I'm pregnant and I really can't have this baby. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure out how to terminate the pregnancy or I'm going to make a plan to place the baby. Um, for adoption, um, these are girls who are extremely passive. They're also socially quite isolated and prone to a lot of magical thinking. Hmm. Um, teenagers do a lot of that magical thinking, like you know, maybe it's not happening. And and magical thinking is common in early pregnancy, especially for teens, where it's like maybe maybe my period's coming. Maybe this maybe this you know maybe this drop of blood that I'm you know spotting here means that I'm not pregnant. And in the case of these girls. Everything in their social environment reinforces that magical thinking. Their parents, with whom they live for the most part, don't recognize it or don't acknowledge it. Their boyfriends either leave or don't recognize or don't acknowledge it. Their teachers, their neighbors, nobody is saying to them, hey, how are you doing? Nobody is putting their hand on their belly, which is rock hard.
0: That's Michelle Overman. She's a professor of law at Santa Clara University and an expert into women who conceal pregnancy and, and then in some cases end up killing the baby. Ryan Kroll, any sense of whether Barbara Smith fits the pattern that she describes? I know there's so much about Barbara's life sure. we don't know. But anything here that strikes you as, yeah, that that might have fit.
1: Sure. I think the two crucial data points in that are the fact that she did objectively or more objectively conceal a pregnancy about a decade after the um, baby in the freezer would have been born. Um, So we do know that if if this was a concealed pregnancy, it wouldn't have been the first time, which is very, I think, key. And also the idea that, like um, Dr. Oberman said, this feeling of shame or like you're going to get in trouble if you um, disclose that you've been having sex, that would track with the idea that she grew up with a in a very strict you know religious family her
0: family was Catholic yes
1: yes okay and um they
0: might have not been happy about her having sex outside of marriage
1: yeah that's definitely a, a, a logical you know uh, conclusion you, you, you can reach or a very informed um, guess you can make and that's what uh, both Adam and Laura have said that their older family members who are around Barbara at the time told her told okay. told them so that that you know that As far as, like, sourcing goes, I feel pretty confident on on that one. Yeah, Yeah. yeah.
0: it's interesting. You know, I also asked Michelle Oberman, the Santa Clara law professor referenced in your Riverfront Times story, about the ways that states like Missouri are restricting access to abortion. Did she see any correlation between the difficulty of getting an abortion and these kind of cases where newborns end up dying? She said she'd actually studied this very issue in Chile. Probably
3: not. Hmm. That these girls are actually really different from the kids who would have abortions um, if abortion was legal. Um, and it, like, if you'll indulge me, I can actually try to explain how I reached that conclusion. Yes, i um, so the, welcome the first, that. So the, the first part of the reason why I think they're different is because of who these girls are. Like a girl who has an abortion is a girl who's making a plan. Mm-hmm. She says, ah, I'm pregnant. I can't have this baby. Here is my plan. I'm going to end the pregnancy or I'm going to tell this person who's going to help me figure out what to do. Right. Those are that's that's the profile of the girls who have abortions. Sooner or later, they make a plan. These girls don't make a plan. Right. The other thing that's clear is that most of these cases tend to involve kids that are really torn about whether they want a baby or not. And in the interviews that I did when working with this population in prison, the, um, the, the other piece of it is that many of them feel like they wouldn't have abortions, and an abortion is, is murder in their minds.
0: Hmm.
3: So it's not just that they can't get an abortion. It's that they wouldn't have one, that they kind of want a baby, but they also kind of think that they'd be exiled to the fringes of their community if they had this baby. It's like, how would I support it? Where would I live? My family would kill me because they'd find out that I was having sex. I mean, you know, really that sort of um, uh, thinking.
0: And again, that's Michelle Overman of Santa Clara University. Ryan, as you're hearing her sort of describe that, we, know, we don't know a lot about Barbara Smith and her youth. We do mm-hmm. know it's a strict Catholic family. She mm-hmm. later went on to have a number of kids. Did, did you get the sense that she was a, someone who enjoyed being a mother?
1: No, I did not get that sense. I, I sensed a fairly contentious relationship with her children. Although, a- as someone like Adam would be quick to point out, a relatively um, functioning one. Mm-hmm. You know, The family unit was staying together through moves and so it was staying cohesive. The
0: kids that she didn't give out for adoption, yeah, she important. did take y- care of. Yeah,
1: exactly. Susan and Adam, who grew up as, as brother and sister. Um, uh, te- technically, they were half-brother, uh, half-sister half that half si- half had different fathers. But yeah, they grew up as a unit. And I guess the one thing I'd like to say about Obermann, which I think is just really, really – it sounds like we both had fascinating conversations with her, was that so many stories you report, you sort of report on the individual to sort of – so that the reader can better understand a larger – Thing. Like, you you write about a person who's been barred from voting so that people can better understand, you know, voting rights or, or whatever. Um, but in this case, sort of the experts, it was kind of the inverse of that, where the experts were giving their kind of general opinion so that we could better understand this individual. And that sort of inversion was really, really interesting. And, and someone like Oberman was a great asset. Yeah,
0: it feels like she added so much to our understanding yes. of, of this
1: just disturbing story. Definitely. Yeah, 100%.
0: I did ask Michelle Oberman about the kind of punishment that women tend to be given in these cases if, say, this baby had been found years before, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. regardless of whether it had been a stillborn or, or had died soon after it was born. And here's what she said.
3: The range of charges brought in these cases is really quite shocking, given how similar the crimes are. Um, so um, in, in any number of cases um, around the country, you'll see these women charged with first degree murder. Um, and the response of the juries, I think, is quite variable. And. Um, you know, I, I think historically until um, maybe the past decade or so, the tendency seemed to be to over prosecute and under convict. So you'd see these first degree murder prosecutions, which I think of as over prosecution because the hallmarks of a deliberate and intentional and premeditated um, act. are Well, I understand as a, as a criminal law professor how you can find them in this case really don't seem to fit the, that, you know, that level of heinousness. Um, doesn't seem to fit these defendants, and juries historically would be much more likely to convict on the lower crime of manslaughter or even involuntary manslaughter. Um, so um, that was a pattern that I that I was confident about, maybe in the early 90s. And these days, I'm actually seeing plenty of cases where there are women serving, uh, you know, as much as life sentence, um, and even very young women wow. so in Ohio. There's a hand, yeah, in a handful of cases in Ohio, they're women serving um life
0: sentences. That's, again, uh, Professor Michelle Oberman. And just seeing some really serious punishments being meted out for women that, in her telling, are largely passive to what's happening to them. You can see how somebody might end up concealing a baby in light of those kind of consequences.
1: Totally. You have the potential ramifications from your, your family, your sort of close-knit social group that could, you know, uh, turn on you. And yeah, then also the, the potential legal ramifications. There's the more you sort of look into the cases, the more you see a something of a explanation as to why someone might do something like that, keeping the baby in the freezer for. Four decades after that, that one's a little bit harder
0: Yeah, much harder to understand. Um, And Michelle Oberman also shared her thoughts on the fact that Barbara Smith did apparently conceal a second pregnancy that we know that Laura Sorensen was a pregnancy she hid. She said that's very unusual that somebody would do that twice. But she shared her thoughts on the fact that in this second case, Barbara gave the baby up for adoption.
3: The act of of placing a baby is such a brave, courageous, but loving act to, to, to opt to carry the term. And then to place your baby that, you know, it, it just it's worth noticing that somebody who does something monstrous at some point in their life isn't necessarily always a monster.
0: Ryan, do you think Barbara Smith's family is able to have that perspective as they're looking at all these secrets that have come out after her death? Or are they just simply horrified by this discovery in the freezer?
1: No, I think definitely they have some perspective on that. I know Laura, for instance, she's she's uh, cited exactly the fact that um, Barbara gave up two children for adoption. Uh, Laura's a, a mother herself, and she said that she knew what um, you know bravery and sort of boldness it would it takes to get it would take to give up a, give up a child. So the fact that she did that not once but twice um, definitely, in Laura's mind, she said shows that it was not like a premeditated thing by any means. It was um, a young person essentially making a mistake. Mm-hmm.
0: You learned so many surprising things while researching this story. What's your main takeaway as you look back on the experience of everything you learned?
1: My main takeaway, I, I, I want to say something like you, you never really know someone, um, but that, that seems sort of cliche. And I don't know if that's even really that true because um, this case just seems so, or the story just seems so singular and so specific that i think there's a lot of things we can sort of learn from it and i I think i guess if i had to sort of pick one it would just be that you never know what someone's going through you never know the circumstances under which someone makes a decision so immediately like oberman said to immediately call barbara smith a monster or something like that i think the facts maybe don't bear that out that there's always context, and that needs to be taken into consideration.
0: And for Adam Smith and his older sister, um, who now have discovered the, these uh, siblings that have been given up for adoption, are they able to have a relationship going forward? Do you get the sense that this is going to be the start of, of something lovely?
1: Uh, yeah, I sure hope so. So Laura, if I'm not mistaken, the first time she met Adam was at, she. so Laura able to make it to Barbara's funeral. Oh, wow. And that was the first time that Laura and Adam met each other, and the first time that Laura had met or the first time Laura met a lot of people in the family the first time Adam had seen a lot of folks in his extended family who came in for the funeral and it sounds like they you know it was obviously a somber occasion it's a funeral but well, they went out afterwards and sounded like they really bonded they clicked instantly Adam and Laura both said that they have similar senses of humor and they've been you know texting and calling and stuff like that since then and um she's just across the river so yeah I, I you know hope I hope for them it does create a really cool uh, uh Siblingship
0: and the police say that they're going to be continuing to sort of run some tests on this baby We may have more information about that. It sounds like in as little as a month.
1: Yeah, hopefully in October We'll find out um, One for certain. I mean, it almost seems for certain, but we I, we don't know for certain that the baby was Barbara's Everyone says that's the only thing that's possible and we'll also find out if um, we'll, we'll hopefully find out if the baby died um, as, a, as a stillbirth or if the baby was killed after being born. And uh, Dr. Oberman told me that under normal circumstances, the medical examiner would be able to make those um, distinctions, but you never know after 40 years in a freezer what the viability of some of that material. But yeah, hopefully um, for both the public interest's sake and more importantly for the Smith's family's sake, We'll get some more clarity and some more answers. More of this.
0: these secrets will be coming to light. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. We can only only hope.
0: Ryan Kroll, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Ryan's story, Cold Case, is on the streets now. It'll be there for the next couple days. You can also read it online at riverfronttimes.com. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.